Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back, listeners, to this episode of the Pre-Paces podcast. And this week, we return to our Being a Medveg series, where we talk to intensive care consultant, Dr. Andy Fu. Andy was a brilliant guest who brought us fantastic insights into the thought process behind decisions made in the intensive care unit, as well as incorporating advice you can take into your shifts as the medical reg. Lastly, massive thanks on the Buy Me A Coffee page to Daniel, an ophthalmology trainee who recently got his pass in his MRCP, so massive congratulations Daniel for that. It's only appropriate that I have to tell you my regular joke about intensive care. It's a good joke, but I just refuse to admit it. And on that note, on with the show. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams, and we are excited to bring you another episode in our Being a MedReg series. Now, one of the key responsibilities you will have as the medical reg is looking after some of the sickest patients in the hospital. And a really key element of managing these kinds of patients is knowing exactly when, why, and how to refer to critical care or the ICU team effectively. With this in mind, we've invited along another expert guest, to help us cover this topic, which is surely essential for any medical reg starting out in their career or even established experienced medical regs. So we're delighted to have consultant in anaesthesia and critical care, Dr. Andy Fu, join us on the show. So Andy, welcome. Thank you for having me, Sam. Much appreciated. Not only will Andy help us uh, discuss the topic of escalating to ICU and, and calling ICU, but Andy will be the next guinea pig on our regular feature of Quiz the Consultant, the quiz where each consultant guest who comes on the show faces 10 quickfire questions on their very own non-medical specialist subject. So Andy, as a little teaser head to the end of the show, what have you chosen as your specialist subject? I've uh, chosen uh, jazz trumpet players. I'll hope not to try try and make not too much of a fool of myself, but I'll try my best. (laughs) And uh, thank you for inviting me on. 
No problem. No problem at all. So all of that's coming up at the end of the show. But we're going to start off talking about calling critical care or ICU. So Andy, I wonder if you could just give us a brief background into your career and how you uh, how you came to have a career which involved also becoming a consultant in intensive care. I qualified uh, back in 2004. And uh, from there, I actually pursued a career in surgery. Going down that route, I kind of got to applying for reg jobs, finished my MRCS and uh, all that stuff. And then um, I suddenly saw the light. I did a cardiothoracics job and I find myself chatting to the anaesthetists and asking if I could uh, get involved with the central lines, spending more time in uh, cardiac ITU. And so that was kind of a bit of a sign to me that I needed to change speciality. And then from there, I did a ITU job as a surgical SHO, and that was quite an experience. So going into an intensive care with no anaesthetic experience, um, something that I, I think your listeners can relate to, was quite a nerve-wracking experience. So I can completely empathize with the, the medics coming through ITU today, but absolutely loved it. And then from there, it was uh, not looking back, actually. Um, I thought that um, doing anesthetics and uh, intensive care would be a good combination. And then uh, followed that route down into the southwest of England, uh, completed my training um, in 2016, and then uh, got a consultant job over at, um, uh, in Gloucestershire Hospitals. Fantastic. So with that in mind, we're going to discuss calling ITU and an appropriate escalation for the medics who are rotating through intensive care. Now, Andy, there are multiple training pathways which can include a rotation in critical care. As you know, it's uh, now a compulsory requirement for uh, IMT doctors to have a rotation in ICU. So how have you found it in critical care, having medical trainees regularly on the shop floor in the intensive care unit? Um, I think it's been absolutely fantastic and I'm really glad that uh, there's a greater uh, IMT presence within the the team. It's something that I think is underestimated from the medical side of things. I think that um, the SHOs and registrars that come and join us feel a a bit bit like a fish out of water. But I try and emphasize that um, the skills that they bring to the team is a completely different perspective to the majority of people in ICU. And I think that um, uh, it really does uh, add to the the care of the patients. I think that uh, the diagnostics and uh, a lot of the the medical side of things that um, as an anaesthetist and uh, an intensivist sometimes is not quite as apparent, I think is, is it just allows us to, one, in terms of educate me and keep me up to date a little bit, but two, is it just um, a, that different perspective allows um, just a broader uh, differentials and uh, diagnostics on that side of things. It is something that I'm hoping will encourage more IMT trainees to pursue a career in intensive care medicine, because I, I think that as a speciality, um, it can only benefit from having a, a wider uh, sphere of um, clinicians um, within that speciality. Um, having did a, when I was an SHO, I did a job down in Exeter where one of the consultants was a, a renal physician and intensive care consultant. And, um, and it was a very apparent even then that having, um, a medic, medical consultants in intensive care was a real asset to the whole team. 
So it's been, I think it's been absolutely fantastic. And uh, one of the things that I try and uh, yeah, emphasize is that um, we'll, we'll teach the skills needed, but don't be afraid to uh, speak up and get stuck in, really. Yeah, fantastic. And before we get on to the, the types of skills which our listeners, prospective junior medical registrars may need when they're liaising with critical care, I thought we'd just address the, the feeling that trainees or IMT doctors may have as they're approaching a rotation in critical care. So if we have listeners who are IMT doctors who have a critical care rotation coming up over the next six to 12 months, what advice would you give to them before starting their rotation to get the most out of their time in critical care? That's a really good question. I think the key things would be to be comfortable with managing uh, those patients that are deteriorating and starting to show signs of organ dysfunction and to be able to uh, initiate care within the first 30 minutes, hour, that would include resuscitation, etc. And then from there, what would be really good, but I'm not quite sure is realistic, is um, being able to kind of like buddy up with an anesthetist or an intensivist uh, to kind of see what the things that they do at a resuscitation or at a cardiac arrest or in the recess room down in ED, just to be able to uh, see the, the skills they use and also the, the perspective they go from. When a patient is critically unwell, then sometimes the diagnosis will come in due course. But what you have to do is make sure that you follow your A, B, C, D and E and be able to treat the immediate life-threatening physiology that's happening in front of you. And so it's kind of like asking um, the medics to not worry too much about the diagnostics, but um, to jump in and start uh, getting involved with, okay, do we need to supplement this patient with the water circuit and do uh, bag mask ventilation? Um, and are we going down the route of uh, giving some peripheral vasopressors just to maintain a blood pressure so that the patient's not going into cardiac arrest, et cetera? So I think, I think yeah, um, when, you, when you see a sick patient and their ITU are getting involved, I think trying to see what they're doing, try and um, uh, get a feel of what the main issues that they're addressing, and that will give you a feel of what to expect when you come to ITU. Obviously, it would be lovely to spend six months uh, doing anesthetics in theatres so you can home in on your airway skills, etc. But um, which is part of obviously a ACCS uh, training, but um, not necessarily available to obviously all medics. Yeah, and, and I think that's just one important thing to touch on is that it, it's not an essential criterion to be airway trained w- when you're on the unit. And obviously, there's different expectations uh, between the ACCS trainees who maybe have had already a rotation in anaesthetics or in ED and been involved in intubations for example versus a medic who may have done elderly care endocrine and respiratory for example yeah absolutely right what was interesting when we tried to accommodate airway trained people and non-airway trained people with the rotor we found that um, actually it is very doable and so that um, we always ensure that a non-airway trained person is buddied up with an airway trained person and therefore anyone who comes to our intensive care i'm not fully sure about other intensive cares but in in terms of our intensive care the medics that join us uh, are appropriately supervised so therefore they don't need to worry about airways they're most welcome to obviously um, learn about airways etc in a safe environment but um, there, there will be an airway trained person to cardiac arrests to review patients on the ward 
um, to uh, critically unwell patients. But the medics um, in those critical scenarios are still absolutely essential. And it's been fantastic to see uh, the medics that have come through our unit, how uh, even though they're not airway trained, they've become uh, incredibly um, uh, important in terms of the team, in terms of um, helping the airway trained person, being in the airway assistant or dealing with the um, uh, resuscitation while the uh, airway trained person can then deal with the airway as well. So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's been great to see how uh, the team has gelled and how the team has adapted with the different skill mixes. Yeah, and I think that's a really nice segue to take us on to sort of the skills which you're, you know, which may be available to us uh, as as medical trainees coming into ITU, and hopefully that the listeners will have the opportunity to develop their skills, uh, which may may be applicable on the wards. And and one of many skills that I learned, well, I developed during my time in critical care was the use of ultras- any any ultrasound guided procedure, whether or not that's uh, central lines uh, or leg lines, femoral lines or just ultrasound guided cannulas, it's a really good place where there are other skilled professionals around to help you develop those skills, which are then applicable on the ward. This is the perfect opportunity for you to get stuck into procedures like this, and especially the use of ultrasound guided procedures. Yeah, I think that we're very lucky in intensive care uh, because um, I think we're um, well staffed and also we often have lots of uh, machines and fancy uh, bits of kit to make uh, to try and make our lives a bit easier, uh, and so uh, we have uh, several ultrasound machines on on our unit um, uh, to to do those different things. So, yeah, in terms of skills coming, uh, if you're going to come onto intensive care, I think uh, central lines, arterial lines uh, are very high on the list, and I think that a lot of uh, medics join us with the intention of at least getting a few of those lines under their belt. It's great to see everyone's enthusiasm regarding that. I'm, I'm very motivated to make sure that line training or being able to put lines in is of value to that person moving forward in their career as well. So um, there's not that much point in someone learning how to do loads of central lines when they're going to choose to be, I don't know, a GP or uh, be in a specialty where they're not necessarily going to be doing those lines or are dealing with sick patients in that respect. But they're still useful um, and essential part of the team. But it's like we often try and um, uh, ensure that the, the the training that we give is of value in the, in the long term as well. In terms of uh, other skills, one thing that anaesthetists and intensivists love talking about is physiology and being able to manipulate that physiology to try and get relatively sensible numbers on the observation uh, screens. So there's a lot of um, skills discussing about or skills learning how to how to mim- manipulate the physiology to try and get relatively normal observations. Uh, and that will incorporate using various different machines with that. So medics joining us will become more familiar with um, the hemofilter or more familiar with inotropes and vasopressors and um, as well as the ventilator too. And so um, it's been great to see various different uh, medics getting stuck in and being able to uh, be comfortable with the various different machines surrounding the patient. When uh, when they first arrive, they're often quite intimidated by that. But um, by the time they leave, they uh, when they look at an ITU patient and all the different gizmos around them, then they not only know what they do, but are happy to use those machines uh, with, with super, uh, within the realms of uh, what, what they're happy with to, to try and stabilise patients. 
uh, in the ITU environment. So, so there's lots of different um, um, skills to learn and be familiar with. And I do appreciate that when people first arrive, then it is quite an alien environment. But, um, but I, I find that with a lot of supervision uh, from not, not just consultants, but also other members of the team, that um, people tend to settle in quite nicely and become a, an essential member of the team. And one of the last things I want to touch on before we move on to the sort of practicalities of liaising with critical care is we've talked about knowledge-based things which they could do. We've talked about skill-based. And lastly, I wanted to talk about sort of behavioral-based things which they can take away from critical care. And I think one thing which is not to be downplayed is having a form of emotional resilience. I know it's a sort of a bit of a buzzword for some, but it's very different to any ward job which anyone will have done before, even you know, coronary care, something like that. It, for me, it's entirely, it's a different kettle of fish entirely. You know, you regularly come across very sad cases which will hit home for some in a in a much more significant way than anything they've seen on the ward. And so for me, that was something which I felt it was important to mention that, you know, you do have to sort of prepare yourself for these sad cases because it's, it's you, you will see things there which you won't see on the ward. Mm. And often it will be these cases which almost bypass the medics entirely because they just are so sick that they end up on the, on the, on the unit straight away. You're absolutely right. I think that um, being at the front of, of, of patients that are deteriorating in front of you, that um, it can be um, uh, emotional. The thing that um, has been very apparent to me uh, with the team that I work with, uh, and I feel very fortunate for this, is that when there has been quite a um, traumatic kind of experience, that um, the team is very motivated to talk to each other we are very um, uh, motivated in setting up hot debriefs and then often we do several cold debriefs as well and ensure that um, it involves the whole mem- all the team from HCAs to uh, junior nurses, senior nurses, porters and anyone else is involved. So I think in, in the intensive care, um, because we have the luxury of probably less patients but obviously the more intense that we therefore have more resources to be able to do that in terms of being able to provide uh, more kind of support in that respect. And from my point of view, I feel very lucky to to be able to talk to my colleagues uh, as well as the team about whatever regarding uh, these patients. It's been really interesting that when I first started as a a consultant, uh, I had... um, some nurses um, talk to me about um, cases uh, that, that they've they've had on their shoulders for the last four years or so. And they kind of talk to me about it again. Well, was this the right thing to do? I feel responsible that I did this. One example was a patient that was critically unwell on, on uh, ridiculous amounts of um, inotropes and vasopressors and ventilated on all sorts of things, um, uh, all sorts of machines to keep them alive. And then the, the, the nurse was rotating the patient as, as they do to, uh, as an essential part of that, that patient's care. And then the, the patient arrested. And, and then for years, she felt that because she, she turned the patient, that she caused the cardiac arrest. Things, things like that, they hold for a long time. And so if you don't do these hot debriefs and cold debriefs, then, um, then it can have uh, lasting effects on individuals. So um, hearing that and talking to other people within uh, my department, uh, we're highly motivated to have these um, uh, 
debriefs as well as like a well-being um, kind of structures within the department and things because we are aware that it can be very emotional sometimes and can be quite raw um, with some of the cases. So for your listeners, I think to be reassured that, yes, it can be a bit emotional, but it also there is the support there for everyone to to be able to talk about these issues. Yeah, would would wholeheartedly agree. And one thing I think our listeners could also take away from this is debriefs after having a, after a cardiac arrest. I'll leave it there because we'll probably do another episode on cardiac arrests, but it's now it's now routine in my practice that after after any arrest, there's always I always try and debrief and ideally as soon as practically possible after after the arrest. Even though like uh, ITU can be quite dramatic, you can have some pretty dramatic things happen on the ward as well. Um, and you have sick patients and deteriorated patients on the ward that may not even come to ITU. Um, and so for me, um, I, I think that these principles can be applied everywhere. Um, and and uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be just a cardiac arrest or, or an ITU uh, admission or a, or a death. It could be a patient that just deteriorated and it was very dramatic, but then they improved or whatever. I think that uh, our colleagues within the NHS, they, they um, have to come across so many different things. It's very emotional. And so um, uh, throughout the whole of the hospital, not, not just intensive care. And so moving on to what I will call the meat and the sandwich of this episode, and hopefully will be most valuable to our listeners is is as a junior medical red you're going to be looking after some of the sickest patients in the hospital and we're going to try and help you make these uh, make these referrals to intensive care as efficient and effective as as possible and and hopefully give you some insight into into how you can improve these processes to make sure you, you do the best for your patient and so Andy, to start off, a lot of medical trainees are apprehensive about calling critical care about unwell patients. So from your perspective as a critical care team, what makes these conversations or referrals easier for the ITU team? First, I would like to say is that in intensive care, we want to hear about these patients and we want to have these referrals because I, I do appreciate that some people go, oh, I'm not quite sure if I should disturb intensive care. But from, from my perspective uh, and from my speciality, that's the bread and butter of what we do. And so therefore, um, getting these referrals and hearing about these patients is what we want. Um, the, the key things that would, that would make those conversations easier would be to um, have a good knowledge of the patient, good knowledge of not just the acute pathology, but also the backgrounds, the comorbidities and various things. But I do appreciate that sometimes time does not you, allow you to have, um, have all of that. And um, to be clear as to what you are asking from us. Um, so to get it clear in your mind as to, is it, is it advice that you want? Is it, is it a review and you want intensive care to come and see the patient? Or do you think this patient needs intensive care admission and that you're worried that this patient is critically unwell and, uh, and you need an urgent referral? And so I think with that, if you declare that right from the beginning, then it just makes things flow a lot easier in terms of from a, from from my point of view or my team's point of view is and then we we kind of like can or turn our brain into what is needed uh, or how we can serve you better in terms of now that we know what you want i'm quite a, a simple person and i've got kind of a, a simple brain and so so i often um talk about patients from an a b c d e point of view and if you um and if you talk to any intensivist in that structural format then you can't go much wrong, really. I think that um, the other 
universal language that um, can should um, should be understood by all is the the news two scoring system and where patients are uh, triggering uh, and that allows people to kind of immediately understand which organs are are failing the things that have a consequence in terms of uh, admission to ITU or something that we can uh, help with is understanding what the reversibility is of that pathology. So what we don't want to do is admit patients to intensive care where, when we can't make them better, where we can't reverse that, that problem, that pathology, uh, because there's no point. All the machines in the world that support organs from ventilators to uh, inotropes or, or hemofiltration, that is not going to make the patient better. All those machines do is provide time. It gives that patient time. Um, and it's the um, uh, the uh, acute pathology and the reversibility of that pathology is what's going to make that patient better. And so understanding what it is that, that can be treated will then uh, give us an indication that, okay, this patient has a possibility to survive from this. There is a reversibility and therefore um, uh, admission to ITU would be logical. And then with that, uh, once you've gone through the the, the the different systems, we've got an understanding of the pathology, then the next thing we'd probably want to know is the rate of deterioration or the, the trajectory of the patient. So if the patient says, oh, sorry, the patient says, if, the, <laughs> if you say that uh, they've been scoring a news of eight for the last four days and, and they've just... Uh, and their oxygen requirements have gone up from 40% to 45% or so, and um, you're contacting us, then um, one is that we're glad that you're contacting us, but uh, with that rate of deterioration, it's only quite mild. And therefore, um, we would probably think that the urgency of admission may not be as quick versus someone who has deteriorated over the course of a couple of hours or so. And to be able to recognize and declare that that this patient is getting um, uh, deteriorating very quickly and that, that we need to act quickly to, to try and support them. So kind of understanding, um, I suppose what I'm trying to say is understanding the time frame that you want us to react in, in, in a way. And then I suppose um, the, the final thing then is if there has been opportunity to work it out is what, what the patient wants and the family wants, which would bring us on to um, respect uh, understanding patient values and fears and to be able to then marry that up with potential treatments. Yeah. And I think just taking one step back, the really important thing, which I've always found when I was both taking these referrals as an SHO working in, in your critical care, Andy, as well as now making these referrals to critical care is what help do we need from you? This is something which you can assimilate during your time in critical care is the referral asking for respiratory support for maximal oxygen therapy? Is it someone who'd be suitable for invasive intubation? Are you asking for renal support for someone who needs hemofiltration? Are you asking for blood pressure support? Or is it something else completely such as airway protection or even something such as management of abnormal or agitated behaviour? So just knowing the types of patients that come through the critical care department on a, on a regular basis you'll realise which of those you're asking the ICU team to help with. And 
as exactly as you said, Andy, the reversibility factor is when things get slightly complicated and you need to have a think about, well, are we treating something uh, which if admission, if they're admitted to critical care, we will be actually be able to reverse this pathology. I also um, appreciate that um, when a patient gets referred, that you may not have all this information, that uh, I completely appreciate the fact that we as clinicians work in a time-limited environment with limited information, high risk, and that we don't know all the answers and we may not get it right all the time. That is absolutely normal. And therefore, and that's absolutely the same for me. I, I, there, will, there will be scenarios where I've made decisions in terms of admission or not for admission, which may or may not be right. I am not, it's, it's, it's not crystal clear. And so therefore, um, I recommend to your listeners to, to be clear in your mind in terms of um, knowing this patient, but don't be afraid to disagree with the intensive care teams and to, um, to discuss your case and to have the opportunity to explain why you think what you think, because it's not an exact science and we are limited with information. And if we are unsure, then we err on the side of, potent, uh, of admission until proven otherwise, until we can gather that information, which putting patients on machines will give the time to be able to work it out. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing to mention as well, I guess, is you mentioned about the urgency of the referral, which crudely in my head, you could almost treat it as, a, as a, almost a green, amber, red style of referral, where the red is, I need you to come right now, this patient's peri-arrest. Amber is, they're really sick and they may need admission, versus green, where they have potential to deteriorate, but maybe they don't have a critical care requirement right now. Yeah, we could do that. We did try that, <laughs> but it didn't. One of my colleagues said, wait a sec, use red for um, you need them to act straight away. Doesn't red mean stop? <laughs> and so, um, I th- so therefore, we kind of went with the idea of, in my mind, I've kind of clarified it as you see a patient and they need to come now. Uh, I don't care if there's a bed available. I don't care if there's a nurse available. We're coming now and we're crashing through the doors. Um, then there is the patient that you need to admit over the course of 30 minutes to an hour and it gives you the opportunity to prepare the bed space and to sort a few things out and then there's the final patient where they do need to come but they are stable but very much deteriorating and that they should come over the next couple of hours depending on various other things as well but I do think stating a time frame puts everyone on the same page. What you don't want is to go, yeah, I think this patient needs to be admitted. And everyone goes, okay, then I'll come and review them in, an, in a couple of hours when they need to be admitted now kind of thing. It's just getting everyone on that same page and declaring this is an emergency and I need you, I need you to come now. Yeah. And and I guess one thing which goes with that as well is that if, if there's a significant concern about this patient and you feel they need to come now, inherent of that is the fact that you may not have as much information as a patient who's been deteriorating for some time where you do have the time to gather that information. So like you said, it's not uh, pivotal. You have all that information, but especially for patients who have been deteriorating a while, you do have that time to speak to the next of kin if the patient is in a, in a good enough state to ask them what they would have wanted or ask, ask their next of kin what they would have wanted and ask the patient what do they want. Um, and we'll come on to that a little bit a little bit later as well. So we've talked about 
the support which ITU can give, whether it's respiratory, renal, blood pressure, or uh, airway protection uh, support. Um, and we talked about reversibility of the insults. And we've talked about comorbidities and physiological reserve. And one of the things which came up very often, which I still try and get as much info and, and we're sort of segueing into it, is their functional baseline. It's a it's a sort of a bugbear, and it may it may be one of yours as well, Andy. But it's it's when you say independent with ADLs, and I sort of think, well, someone who you describe as being independent of ADLs might be someone who lives in a in a house with a stair lift, toilets on a commode, gets their shopping delivered, and has a seat in their shower and never leaves the house, versus someone who is truly independent of ADLs, who is a you know might be an elderly patient, but they're out of the house every day. They climbed scaffold pike last week and they you know drive a harley davidson you know it's, it's the difference between those two patients but independent with adls is one of the phrases which i think uh, is less helpful than describing exactly what this person can do on a day-to-day basis absolutely uh, i think that as um as an intensivist uh, we we heavily rely on understanding the physiological reserve of patients um and uh, it's the social history that provides that information when it comes to an uh, unplanned hospital admission. And um, it is something that is not necessarily well documented. And uh, I I do find that very frustrating because it's often clarified by the most junior doctor in the hospital at the point of admission and never addressed again. And so, uh, and I agree as well, independent of ADLs is such a non-specific statement uh, that um, it provides very little information. And so um, the things that I try and do to get around that is to read the physiotherapy notes uh, if they've been in for a few days, to um, see other documentation in terms of the nurses, in terms of how much they mobilized within the hospital when they hadn't deteriorated uh, as such. Of course, you don't get that uh, opportunity with all patients, but um, the patients that have been in for a bit, you can um, get a bit of an idea from uh, from the, that documentation. I think that uh, from an intensive care point of view, that physiological reserve is a really important piece to the puzzle to be able to work out um, what is realistic or not. And as you probably know, you can have you can have a patient who's had an echo and it says um, uh, a good LV and no other issues. But then um, when you actually talk to them and they, they're struggling to walk up a flight of stairs, they're struggling to do very simple things around the house, um, sometimes these investigations don't necessarily marry, marry up to realistic um, or um, uh, actual real world uh, scenarios. And it can obviously work the other way around too. So um, definitely understanding uh, the real world uh, exercise tolerance and uh, physiological reserve um, is for, for us, um, a really important thing. And we only get that information really from talking to the family and the patients and seeing if the physios and the rest of the people have explored that a bit as well. However, <laughs> when you do ask patients, sometimes they can be a bit too um, unrealistic with what they can do. <laughs> so they'll sometimes go, oh, yeah, yeah, I work, walk every day and I walk for a good hour and do this, this, and this. And then you talk to the relatives and they go, no, they don't. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, uh, or they did it a year ago or two years ago, but they've not been out of the house for the last six months. And so, so it does require a bit of digging and a bit of time, 
But um, that information is um, absolutely golden in terms of being able to understand how they're going to cope with multi-organ support. Because what I find quite interesting um, uh, from a ITU point of view is, is that uh, most of the specialties, especially in cardiology, you, you kind of, a lot of your treatments are designed to reduce the workload of the heart. But then in intensive care, everything we do results in increasing work in terms of every single organ in the body. And so as soon as they come through those doors, then we switch off the the, the beta blockers and all that stuff and then whack on the, uh, the noradrenaline and the adrenaline or whatever and go absolutely the opposite direction. And so um, it's, it's like running a marathon every single day for that patient uh, with every single organ. And so um, uh, if they're unable to walk up a flight of stairs, then they are going to um, fall apart when they end up on multi-organ support because the, um, the uh, physiological demand on that, uh, on that body is immense. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I wanted to come back to as well, which you mentioned right at the start, is more of an attitude thing, which is I, I'm going to put words in your mouth a little bit, but it was the fix the numbers thing, which I empathize with what, with what you're saying, because that for me was the thing with intensive care is that as medics, it's our, in our nature to stroke our beards and scratch our heads and think, Oh, well, I wonder what's causing this AKI three and maybe just ignoring the fact the patient has been aneuric for the last five hours and actually needs to go on the filter. So um, that was one of the things which I really thought maybe just worth emphasizing again, that, whilst you you really want to try and turn on your your diagnostic flair actually fixing the numbers and and getting the numbers (laughs) looking prettier isn't natural for medics but that's something which is uh, obviously really important in in critical care well it's it's interesting you say that actually and this is where i think a marriage between uh, intensive care and uh, uh, imts and and medicine uh, works out really well because it's been well well discussed within ITU conferences that making the numbers look better doesn't necessarily make the patient better. Um, so yes, um, obviously you want to aim for relatively normal physiology, physiology, and that's what anaesthetists are really good at is being able to uh, get that blood gas looking pristine, to get that blood pressure and that map within the desired area and tweaking the noradrenaline for that. But I think one of the things that I uh, tell trainees all the time is zoom out look look at the bigger picture for this patient Uh, and so now that you've made the numbers look better for today or for this hour what is the bigger picture here let's what's the plan for this next week which way is this patient going and uh, that then jumps into the beard scratching uh, diagnostics and uh, looking at or realizing patient is not going in the direction that you would anticipate which would imply that something's wrong and something that you might not necessarily see if you're zooming in to the hour by hour uh, noradrenaline requirements and FIO2s. Um, so I think that's why I think the, the combination of the two specialities uh, works out really well because it allows um, those different perspectives to be able to then provide that better care. So Andy, the next thing I wanted to talk about was a couple of the, uh, I want to do some myth busting with you. So I've written down a couple of maybe a, f- a few myths which sort of popped into my head. I think initially my I, I had asked 
maybe you to think of what are some of the biggest myths of critical care and I jotted down a couple but I wonder if maybe I can ask you to just comment on don't have to be long answers could be could be a, just a, a one-liners but just your thoughts on my on my myths of critical care yeah. so the first the first myth of uh, intensive care ITU can fix everything and all patients who go to ITU get better absolutely not we have a probably uh, on average about 20 percent mortality and we do not fix everything at all. We only give the patient more time. It's um, all those fancy machines that go bleep. Just give that patient more time while we scratch more beards and scratch our heads a bit more. Excellent. And the next myth comes in quotation marks. And consider this as as part of a uh, as part of a referral. But I've got I've got <laughs> sort of second bit in brackets. So this patient is very sick, and they definitely need intensive care. Brackets but they don't have indications for organ support. I think that any patient that is sick and that the clinician is worried about, then I want to hear about it. Um, You do not need to have organ failure to result in an ITU admission. And uh, I would commend anyone to contact us if you're worried about a patient and either you're not fully sure, but you can see that they're getting worse or they are you are confident they are going to get worse and you want to catch them early. Great, great advice. Next one, all patients in ITU are, in inverted commas, at death's door. (laughs) No. So um, uh, the majority of patients that get admitted to intensive care are actually um, uh, level two patients or, or formerly known as HDU patients where um, uh, they are here for um, a single organ support or airway monitoring because of um, an elective operation that they've had. And so, so a lot of the patients within ITU are actually uh, not, not that sick, but they just need a little bit of tweaking before going back to the ward for uh, one reason or another. Okay, well, those are the three that I came up with. Are there any additional myths that you, that you hear about as a consultant that you think, oh, that's a load of rubbish? <laughs> I suppose one um, would be ITU is an anaesthetic subspeciality, and that is not true at all. And as probably most people know now, is that it's its own speciality in its own right, and they're actively seeking and um, other spe- specialities to get involved as such. And I would recommend that to everyone. As you mentioned earlier on, you don't need organ failure to be admitted to um, to be considered for ITU. Yeah, I suppose. And oh yeah, and in terms of intensive care, um, we, we're we not the ivory tower where we lock our doors and stop people coming in. We, <laughs> we, we want people to come in and we want to, um, uh, we just want to make sure that the people that come in, we help and we can help um, because we know that we're a limited resource and we know that we're a very expensive resource as well. Yeah, absolutely right. And so now, maybe from a more sort of personal perspective, my next question is, what would you say are the, are the best two or three things about working in intensive care, whether a trainee, whether as a trainee or as a consultant, and what would you say are the two to three worst things? Good questions. Um, so probably the best, best things would be, um, for me, having the time to go into good, great detail with that patient and being able to then call whoever 
and they will happily answer and they will happily be motivated to come in and give me their opinion and get involved. So I feel incredibly privileged to be in that position where um, uh, other specialities are incredibly helpful um, because as an intensivist, I know intensive care, but there are a, I, I only have a um, limited knowledge in all the other specialities. And so um, uh, for me, I see these other specialities in terms of getting involved as a way of uh, actually treating the patient properly while I just do the ITU bit, which makes them stable, makes them um, uh, relatively um, manageable and uh, overcoming the practicalities. But it's the it's, 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 it's you specialities that come in um, that actually make a massive difference. And so uh, I feel very lucky that people uh, are very motivated to get involved. And I suppose the, the other thing that uh, I feel uh, very uh, grateful for is the, uh, the nursing staff that I work with. But in all the ITUs I've worked with, um, the intensive care nurses are phenomenal. They, um, they're motivated, uh, they're uh, amazing with patients, and uh, they just are brilliant in terms of teaching, training, and uh, just um, making sure that um, from their side of things that they are uh, well-equipped and well-sorted. So when we have a sick patient and we literally land them onto the unit in an absolute mess, then they just uh, they uh, they they work incredibly hard and they just make it all happen. Uh, as I request a million different things, and they're running around the running around the bedside. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. So so um, uh, that's something that I'm very grateful for. In terms of the two work, well, a couple of worst things about intensive care. I suppose one of them is the challenge of uh, understanding which patients uh, will respond to treatment and which patients won't. Um, and when you get it wrong, where you you um, uh, admit someone who shouldn't probably have been admitted to intensive care, and then you see you've prolonged their, um, their life, but during that a prolonged phase they um uh you're sticking lines into various things like that and then they die from there it's um it's it's kind of it's, it's an ethical discussion um uh all around this but it's very difficult um to kind of you see you see the um loss of dignity as patients go through that uh which is inevitable with any medical treatment but um but prolonging that when um, it may not necessarily have been the right decision and uh, your the, your nursing colleagues are turning around to you and saying what are we doing here um, uh, that is probably something that's very difficult to stomach and then I suppose um, the other thing is um, uh, trying to make um, decisions on patients that you can't talk to <laughs> so so the the challenge of like because um, being able to understand uh, their values and their fears and uh, and uh, what is important to them obviously is the cornerstone of any any decision making and uh, I would recommend to any of your listeners to to freely reflect patients uh, fears and um, and wishes in the notes or on the respect form um, uh, because when they come to us they are delirious and unconscious uh, most of the time and we can't have that conversation and so therefore we end up having to talk through family and and you're kind of trying to guess or you, uh, you at the end of the day you don't know if you've got it right until they wake up again really.
Yeah, really important lesson there. So it doesn't really matter what grade you are, whether it's foundation doctor, IMT or registrar. If you have a conversation with a with a patient who you think might need escalation, you might be the last person to, to speak to them and get to document their thoughts before they're then, you know, ventilated, intubated and put to sleep for, you know, for the foreseeable until they can be uh, woken up. So really important there. So even if you're at the front door and you only speak to them for 10 minutes, even if, you know, that, that opportunity to document their wishes, if they tell you something important is, you know, of paramount importance, I guess. Absolutely. And I just wanted to reassure your listeners that um, uh, I'm sure everyone in the Southwest is aware of the respect form. Um, and um, section three is the bit where it's patient wishes and patient fears. And section four is the treatments uh, and management plans. And uh, I would recommend to anybody uh, who works in a hospital, and when I say anybody, I literally mean anybody in terms of nurses, doctors, uh, physios, uh, dietitians, or whatever, is that um, we naturally have these human-to-human conversations with patients, and we it, they never get recorded, um, uh, but they're so important, uh, and it's, it's 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 the most basic of human connections in terms of talking about wishes and fears and things, and people naturally do it through just simple conversation. Um, and so I would recommend to any of your listeners to be able to pick up a respect form. If you do have those conversations is to pick up the respect form and just, you're not making a decision. All you're doing is reflecting what the patient says on that respect form on section three. So you're not making any decisions about treatments and management plans, which may vary from day to day and actually may change from speciality to speciality. I change this uh, section for resuscitation or not for resuscitation on my patients all the time while they're in ITU. Um, but what often remains constant or doesn't change half as much is those patient values. And so so being able to just reflect what those patients say. And it's not a oh, patient value is they want everything. That that's not that's not a patient value. That is a um, <laughs> a that is a independent of all the ADLs <laughs> kind of kind of statement. Um, it's it's more of a I, what is important to me is I want to be able to walk my dog every day. That and and that is a really important thing to me. I can if if someone filled in a respect form and left the fourth section blank as well as the resuscitation bit blank, but they uh, filled in section three and said, "Oh, what's really important to this patient is being able to um, go to the shops or be able to um, uh, yeah, walk their dog or 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 things like that." Then that for me is tangible. That's something that I can understand. That's something that I can. Um, I can work with in terms of uh, marrying up any treatment in intensive care that may produce that type of outcome. And on top of that, it's in a language that patients can understand. If you start talking about resuscitation and uh, shocks, but not CPR, or I'm going to ventilate you, but not put you on a hemofilter, then they have no idea what you're talking about. And rightly so, because it's it's very complicated. And um, But if you're talking about real values and quality of life then that's something that they can understand yeah really really important and i think that's probably a good place to end our chat on discussing with icu calling icu whatever you want to call it um so that only leaves us uh, i think we've covered that really well andy and uh if we're not blowing our own uh, trumpets <laughs> it's time to get on to trumpets. Uh, <laughs> it's time to get on to quiz the consultant it's time for the greatest regular non-medical quiz to feature on a medical podcast. It's Quiz the Consultants. 
So welcome to our regular feature, Quiz the Consultant. This is the regular feature where our bosses take on a specialist subject of their choosing with a caveat that it can't be related to medicine. So Andy, you mentioned at the top of the show, but what is your specialist subject and why have you chosen it? Um, so yeah, jazz, jazz trumpets. Uh, and the reason being is I've been playing the trumpet for a few years now, well, a fair few years, but I'm absolutely rubbish at playing jazz. So it's one of my things that I'm trying to work on and um, and so yeah so obviously that means I listen to a lot of jazz trumpet players and all that stuff so I thought that would be a, an interesting one to be asked questions on but my knowledge is not that good <laughs> let's give it a go <laughs> <laughs> well you don't have anything to worry about because as always we do have the multiple choice options so this is how we play it's a 10 question quiz you've got two points if you get the answer without the multiple choice options. But if you need a bit of a helping hand, you can ask the multiple choice options. And after that, you get one point. So there's 20 points up for grabs, 10 questions. And can I say, this was a real delight to uh, to to research. It's a real shame for you know copyright and whatever. I can't actually use the, the clips themselves, but still it's just great to get exposure to, to something which is you know completely new for me as well. So question number one. Okay, the question number one is, is extremely basic so how many valves does your box standard trumpet have oh i can answer that three three is correct for two points question number two so which grammy winning jazz trumpeter released these iconic albums birth of the cool kind of blue sketches of spain and miles ahead <laughs> um that's miles davis it's got to be miles davis it was Miles Davis for, for another two points. Question number three. Which trumpeter hailing from New Orleans rose to fame in the 1920s with songs including Cheek to Cheek, Summertime, Dream a Little Dream of Me, and probably most famously, What a Wonderful World? Ah, <laughs> oh, oh, I know this one. Louis Armstrong, uh, a real inspirational figure for me. Louis Armstrong is correct. And this is sort of a, it's question four, but it's related to that last question. The song, What a Wonderful World, features in which of these films? So I'm, oh well, I, I can give you, if you can get the film straight away, but I'll give you, I'll give you uh, two if you can get the film straight away, but I've got some, uh, I've got some multiple choices. I'll give you a clue in that it was 1988, the film. Uh, it's been in so many different films, hasn't it? Yeah, I'll go for multiple choice. I was going to say James Bond, but James, uh, one of the James Bond movies, but like uh, that was before 1980. Okay, so which of these films features the song What a Wonderful World? Is it Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, Good Morning Vietnam, or The Shining? Ooh, okay. Um, what was the first option again? First option was Philadelphia. I'm going to go with Philadelphia, I think, because it, it wasn't in Good Morning Vietnam. Oh, wait a second, shit, was it? Oh, it's either Philadelphia or Good Morning Vietnam. It's, it definitely wasn't in The Shining. <laughs> um, and I don't think it was in Forrest Gump. So, oh yeah, it's, I'm going to go with uh, Good Morning Vietnam. It was Good Morning Vietnam for one point. Get back on your gut. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, question number five. Which jazz trumpeter was well known for puffing out his cheeks while playing also played with a custom bent horn and was a founding father of the bebop genre of jazz. Oh, that's got to be Dizzy Gillespie. I remember trying to do that when I played the trumpet and then almost passed out. 
It was Dizzy Gillespie. Another two points. Going well here. Question number six. Which jazz trumpeter was nicknamed Brownie and worked closely with Dizzy Gillespie before unfortunately dying at a young age in a car accident? He composed songs including Joy, Spring and Sandu, which have since become jazz standards. Um, don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Multiple choice. Yeah, skip that. Is it Lee Morgan, Clifford Brown, Chet Baker or Donald Byrd? Um, I would probably go for Donald Byrd. It was Clifford Brown who was nicknamed Brownie. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, good. <laughs> question number seven. This is a question about the most expensive trumpet ever. How much did Dizzy Gillespie's trumpet sell for at auction in 1995? I'll I'll give you five thousand dollars either way for two points. That's your uh, that's your margin of error. Or you can take the options for one point. Ooh, um, I have absolutely no idea. So give me the options, and I'll uh, I'll that'll probably probably the best bet for me. So, how much did Dizzy Gillespie's trumpet sell for at auction in 1995? Was it a five thousand dollars? B, $15,000. C, $27,500. Or D, $55,000. I'm going to go for $55,000. It was $55,000. Top whack. That's an expensive trumpet. It is. It is. <laughs> okay, question number eight. Which trumpeter became the only musician to win Grammy Awards in both jazz and classical music in the same year? In 1983, at the age of just 22, his most popular songs include Where or When, The Very Thought of You, and When It's Sleepy Time Down South. Um, I'm going to guess. I reckon it's uh, Wynton Marsalis. It was Wynton Marsalis. Yes. He also did the soundtrack to Snoopy. <laughs> is that worth a bonus point? I think it is. I think that's worth a bonus point. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Question number nine. Oh, okay. So this is a slightly separate one. I've looked at the top five Spotify songs for a jazz artist that I've mentioned during this quiz so far. Your job is to tell me who it is. So these are the, the top five Spotify songs. So Blue in Green, So What, Round Midnight, Stella by Starlight, Milestones. Um, Miles Davis. That is Miles Davis another two points and same format of question all the things you are on the sunny side of the street bang bang salt peanuts a night in Tunisia I'll go for a multiple choice I'm not too sure about that one okay so the multiple choice it is it Winter Marsalis Dizzy Gillespie Lee Morgan or Clifford Brown uh, Dizzy Gillespie I think it was Dizzy Gillespie for one point, and that was our last question, which leaves you with a score at the end of that of 16 out of 20. That's pretty respectable, Andy. You can tell you've been uh, playing the trumpet for a good long time. <laughs> thank you. But, Andy, that only leaves us to say a huge thank you for joining us on the Pre-Paces podcast, discussing everything to do with critical care, to do with referring to critical care, and what our listeners can get out of their time in critical care. So, Andy, huge thank you to you for coming on the show today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure and thank you for inviting me. Much appreciated. And listeners, that's the end of another show. Don't forget, we always love to hear from you. So 
Get in touch via our Twitter. It's at prepacespodcast. Or as ever on our website, it's prepacespodcast.com. Don't forget, wherever you get your podcasts, you can like, follow, subscribe, leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really want to go above and beyond and support the show, you can do that over at buymeacoffee.com slash prepacespodcast. But for now, we're just about out of time. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Pre Paces Podcast. <laughs>